Excellent. My name is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action, and today is the first conference call of 2009. It is January 9th, and I'm so excited to welcome our guest speaker today, Susan Orloff, is an occupational therapist who's very well respected in her field and who's from Atlanta. We're going to be talking about the energy sensory connection and get some ideas from Susan, who is an occupational therapist for adults and children with mitochondrial disease. You may have heard me mention this before, but we timed this actually so that we could use some of this material to support parents who are advocating for their children in school as well. So you'll find a few things on our website that go along with today's meeting, and that is there's a section called School and Advocacy that you can find many tools there, including an article written by Susan that was published in OT Advance about mitochondrial disease children in school and the energy sensory connection. And we also have a brand new video out that you can access off of our website called Energy for Education. You're welcome to request a free copy of that on DVD or to watch it right online. But our hope is that we can help bridge the gap that happens sometimes with the knowledge of what a person's symptoms are and how to make the best accommodations for that child or that individual um, in an environment outside of home. Susan is um, a dynamic and energetic professional, and, and I found Susan after finding her article and being so impressed that she really hit home about some of the key aspects of mitochondrial disease, and so I immediately called her and was thrilled to have a conversation with her, and I'm really excited to introduce you, her to you today. Um, Susan has over 30 years' experience in the field of occupational therapy and and many awards, including a Woman of Distinction from the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America for betterment of the lives of children with disabilities. And Susan, you have such an extensive biography, I could go on and on, but I would like to encourage you to go ahead and add anything else you think is important to say, and then we can go ahead and get started on our topic for today. Well, I have spent a, a good part of my life being an advocate for children that have various disabilities. And uh, mitochondrial disease is so complicated and at times so very subtle and hard to diagnose initially. And so we get uh, a lot of, you know, um, are you putting him or her to bed on time? Are you, um, you know, he just doesn't have the energy. Uh, you know, I've seen him do it when he wants to. And all of those things just sort of are like nails against the blackboard for me. And so I encourage parents to be an educator when they sit in these meetings. I have been a special ed teacher. I was one of the first uh, resource teachers in America in a program way back before maybe some of you were born in 1970 in a program called MIND, which stood for Meeting Individual Needs Daily. And that's when we were first, like, organizing. I do hope that um, there will be some significant changes in No Child Left Behind and that we can get all of these children included. But the biggest part here is that we really need to be hopeful. Nobody has a crystal ball. And so while you can pull up all kinds of dismal information from the Internet, which is both a pro and a con, I think that we have to say, this is Johnny Smith, and he has uh, all of these wonderful traits. He's happy, he's joyful, he's inquisitive, and he has mitochondrial disease. I don't think that this should be, I have a child with mitochondrial disease, and his name is Johnny Smith. I think that should be somewhere down on the list so that we can look at the positive attributes of the child and focus on that and then accommodate those positive attributes to the needs of his current condition. That's an excellent point, Susan. Thank you. So why don't you go ahead and share with us some of your ideas about um, specific strategies and, and ways that are, we can overcome some of the challenges of mitochondrial disease. Well, I think one of the first things that we have to overcome is ignorance. And that would be the biggest piece that I think we have to do. And so I think that parents would be 
well-placed to put out initially in a, a meeting with uh, teachers and administrators a definition of what this is. Because I think that's the piece that's missing, that, the, that we really need to be um, uh, educating, that they're, that they're energy factories inside their body. And I know that we probably have, uh, uh, Christy, I know you're uh, an RN. Um, I'm not sure what that is. Um, yeah, just, just keep going. Uh, that, um, uh, that uh, there might be some physicians or nurse, nurse, other nurses or therapists listening, but uh, I think that sometimes when we try to sound too, uh, you know, uh, get into uh, mitochondrial myopathies with a group of neuromuscular diseases, you know, we we get we get lost in the in the language, and I think getting lost in the language is um, it, it can it. It doesn't help anybody. So I think that when we talk about that, we can put it down into its lowest common denominator and say our internal, our, our child's internal energy factory is not producing the way it should. And it makes our child more fragile. And so one of the first things we want to do is we want to provide this child with a lot of energy conservation, we want to um, instruct the teacher that, uh, you know, if, if the child can demonstrate that they have the knowledge in five written answers, then they shouldn't have to do ten. And there's all kinds of accommodations and modifications that if, they ch if the parent and the teacher work together, they can just modify. Also, if you're in a work situation and you are an adult, and um, you, uh, there's an urgent meeting that you have to be at at 7.30 in the morning. And um, I, I just was speaking with uh, someone um, uh, uh, last week who said, uh, well, if I tell my boss, uh, then he, it will be a black mark against me. I do not think, first of all, there are several laws that are out there today. The ADA, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, they can't hold it against you. If you're doing your job and you are there and you're normally supposed to be at work at 9, but today you have to come in at 7.30, it would be perfectly reasonable to say, due to my condition, I would like to go into the employee's lounge and have an extra 45 minutes for lunch to rest. And so you can be in control of yourself. Asking for what you need is never a bad thing, no matter whether you have mitochondrial disease or not. And, um, and letting people around you understand that you've got this condition really helps, um, you know, that – Maybe uh, on a particular day, your eyelids may be droopy, um, or uh, you're, you're nauseous on a particular day. It's not that you're if – you, if you just let – you know, I'm having one of my mito days. You can even put it that way. So – and, and uh, I think that it will help you, and I think most of the time, people are, want to be empathic and helpful and uh, supportive. And uh, and the most important thing for anybody who's working is that they do something that they are totally emotionally and intellectually invested in. So, Susan, let's, that's, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the specific challenges of mitochondrial disease and some ideas you have um, that might happen in a treatment plan for a child or that we could just kind of apply to daily living. For example, strength and endurance is an issue for people with mitochondrial disease. It certainly is. And what we want to uh, do is do graded activities. And it would be really helpful, to, even for the very young child, if we could say, well, we can do this five times, and tomorrow we're going to try to do this eight times, whatever the this is. It might be uh, modified sit-ups. 
I think that um, energy, energy in a way is created by movement, but it, it's a double-edged sword with the mitochondrial child because too much movement fatigues them. So that we want to be very aware of any kind of rhythm disturbances in the heart and, uh, and not just slough those off as um, anxiety or, um, or, you know, just, uh, you know, out of breath or, or whatever. So rhythm regularities and irregularities uh, as far as uh, the heart, cardiac issues, is something that um, we want to be able to put ourselves in pace with and sort of have and teach ourselves to be our own internal monitors. Um, the movement disorders that we have that are like twitches and, um, and weaknesses, certainly those movement disorders that we have are very um, important to also self-monitor as we get into the uh, realization that we have to uh, maybe sometimes use some modifications and um, some uh, accommodations to help revise the way we're doing something. Using a pencil grip for a child who's got weak hand grip would be very good. Even if no one else in the classroom is using it, there are all kinds of fun things. Uh, uh, scrunchies for hair in the very young, the ones that are covered with cloth. Uh, every child could learn how to hold a pencil better, and we could make this a universal activity inside the classroom, which I have done. Um, sometimes there are also what uh, uh, have been identified as stroke-like episodes, where they temporarily lose balance or coordination, and then it returns. And so that we have to be aware that these are part and parcel of the uh, situation that these children are faced with, and that there could be um, limited mobility of the eyes. So visual scanning, getting information off a uh, blackboard or a wipe-off board may be difficult for that child. So in the day, in this age of computer, getting that piece of paper of anything that's going to, that's vital, that's going to be on the on the board, could also be in front of them, because uh, the mobility of the eyes is, is very important. And uh, these children are more prone to headaches. And uh, I know that school nurses are so used to um, what what we call. Uh, uh, examination headaches. You've got an examination this day, you're going to have a headache. And we really need to, when a child with this uh, situation, we really have to become um, more sensitive to that. And although muscle cramping is rare, it can occur, and it can be in the stomach. So it can be misidentified as nausea, or it can actually precipitate nausea. Am I answering the questions? That you're doing a you're doing a great job, Susan, and thank you. And we'll have time for questions from the group as well. I just wanted to kind of cover the basics um, together first. I wanted to ask you also to share some specific ideas you have about helping with things like strength, endurance, and muscle weakness. For example, I love your scrunchie idea. I think sometimes taking those ideas back to the classroom or even for adults to try those that they don't have the luxury of having an occupational therapist in the school setting to kind of come up with those things can be helpful. So do you have any ideas of what might work, for example, for the, the person who fatigues while sitting? Um, circle time or desk sitting can be difficult. Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand that if any of us, sit at a desk too long, we're going to fatigue. We all have the need to get up. And um, I think that with um, children and adults with mitochondrial disease, sitting for too long is a negative. And so one of the things that I have done with some kids, and you can do this with uh, the straight back chairs, but not the... Um, 
plastic chairs that kind of scoop the bottom a little bit. But if you, but if you just get one of the straight chairs uh, that just sort of have a straight back and a straight seat, you can turn it around so that the back of the chair is against the desk and the, chi- and the child's back is free, but they can sit where the front of the chair is supporting their chest. So they're sitting in reverse, sort of like uh, in the old westerns when the guy would pull up the chair and turn it around and say, what's up, Hank? And, uh, and, but what was really interesting was that a lot of the other little boys in the room wanted to sit that way. And it did kind of like perk their alert system. Um, so one of the things that an adult could do, if they can afford it, is to uh, get one of those um, – uh, what they call uh, isometric chairs, where they're actually kind of half kneeling, so that they have they can use their back, so that they can switch the kind of seat they're sitting in during the day. Um, I think that um, you also have to understand that there might be some pain associated, real pain associated with this, and 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 pain is a good. Uh, a little uh, alarm system for our bodies that we've gone too far, done too much, and sometimes we just need to stop. So I would suggest that in the classroom they have some beanbag chairs where the child could go and sit and maybe have uh, one of those uh, uh, bean cushion uh, lap desks and so where they could physically change their uh, whole position um, as much as um as they can, uh, and uh, I think that um, we want to be very careful that we allow the child to have a lot of auditory and uh, visual and motor repetition, because while we are paying so much attention to these little twitches and twings and, and irregularities going on in our body, that we sometimes can't pay attention as closely as we would like to to what is being said to us. And so we can be wrongfully accused of not paying attention. I just want to address one thing. Every school system should have an occupational therapy person uh, available to them, even on a consult basis. That is the law, and that was the law as of 1975. And a lot of school districts, and I'm hearing from therapists in Alaska and in Idaho um, and uh, New Mexico uh, who are saying, uh, you know, I'm an itinerant and uh, I have, and sometimes I sleep over in the town I have to go to. Um, I. And very uh, suspect of why the school system isn't hiring more specialists to at least have each catchment area of five, six, seven uh, elementary schools have a consult occupational therapist that can visit them at least once a month. So if they're not, that that is something that should be available to all school districts in the United States. So if, if you're not getting that, you need to you need to ask them what is their situation and why aren't they providing it. And let's back up a little bit, actually, and I, I want to add one thing about the seating that is a type of chair that I have seen some success with with mitochondrial patients, and um, they ha- make it in adult size to, sizes too. It's called a back jack chair, and so um, some of you may be able to find that it's. it's not very expensive, unlike some of the other adaptive equipment. They're, you know, around $30. You can look it up on the Internet. It's called a back jack chair, and they make them in adult sizes as well. It's a supported floor chair. Um, I also, Susan, it might make sense for you to just give a couple minutes overview about what occupational therapy is and how it is helpful for a person with mitochondrial disease because I find that sometimes we need to make the argument about why certain therapists are necessary when it's not completely intuitive either to the school system or to the insurance company. 
So could you talk a little bit about that? I would be delighted. The occupational therapy frame of reference is function. And it talks about cognitive, neuromuscular, physical, which is different, okay, sensory, and emotional. So we are looking at these five realms, and we are going to be addressing these through functional, meaningful activity. And this is all evidence-based and is research-supported that if we go back, uh, if some of you out there are old enough to even know of um, Patricia Neal, who was an actress who had a stroke, and uh, she was fortunate enough to have independent income and had OTPT and speech for over two years, and she went back on the stage when they thought she'd never walk or talk again. We have a system inside our body that is almost two parallel systems. And these systems almost do the same thing, but not quite. But they see, hear, think, smell, and breathe. And if we are having a problem with one system, the other system can take over for us. But like I said, not quite. One is very fast, like you put your uh, hand in the oven and you forgot to use the oven mitt and you pull it out and then you go, gosh, that was hot. You didn't leave it in there and go, is this hot or cold? And the other one is using your, is like a slow GPS system. And so occupational therapy works with both systems to help people learn how to do the crucial activities for them of daily living. For children, that is going to school and playing. And it is very hard. I heard uh, one of the moms uh, that's listening in has four children. Uh, dressing a child in the morning uh, is very hard. So getting into a routine that would help the child get into their clothes easier and wash and get down for breakfast would certainly be um, something that should be supported by a home visit uh, from uh, the Visiting Health Association in your area to help you establish that for your children. Um, it would also be uh, the uh, school is very interested in the acquisition of knowledge and the ability to give it back. Um, I have some feelings about that. I think schools should be in the business of creating curiosity, but we should be also in the business of providing children methods that would allow them to give this information back. All too often I hear Johnny can talk reams about trees, but when I ask him to put it on paper, he writes, it is big. And we have to really be able to tap into the way a child learns. We are all different learners. If we sat side by side with someone in a classroom or on a job, we definitely know that Sally gets it done differently than Jane. And that's because their systems absorb, retain, and give back information in different ways. This is more complicated with the mitochondrial child, but occupational therapy can get in there and give um, exercises to create uh, a stronger heart rhythm. It can help uh, delay any um, uh, issues with cognitive forgetfulness. It can work with movement disorders. It can work with compensatory uh, 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 issues with children that are experiencing hearing loss. Teaching sign language, although this is a little bit getting into the speech therapy area, I have worked with sign language uh, as a way of making sure that the child, if they couldn't get out the word, could say bathroom or hungry or thirsty or pain fast so that someone would know. Certainly vision loss, learning how to uh, visually scan an area if you have a visual field deficit and, um, and working with and understanding and how to pre-monitor yourself if there is a seizure condition. All of those things are things that occupational therapists can help 
the child and the families cope with and um, and help accommodate for and provide modifications that will make not just the child's life easier in the classroom, but also at home with siblings that are both uh, uh, sometimes supportive and sometimes impatient. Um, have I helped here talk about that? Uh, we are uh, a, an or uh, a therapy that started in 1917 with the return of soldiers from World War One who were coming back and needed to find new occupations. So we're a relatively new therapy, and we worked in something called curative workshops, which were um, workshops that retrained. And so I think we could go back. I think sometimes we fix things that weren't broken, and we can go back to the older type of classroom where we can actually have a curative classroom that allows the children to work within their disability to get the to be able to get the job done of learning. Susan, do you have any advice on ways to help children and adults learn about their own cues? I find that um, an area that's difficult for a teacher, for example, to be able to recognize, or even another family member for an adult patient, is when the body is starting to deplete. It's difficult to see the signs if you aren't aware of what to look for. And waiting until the child is in a lump on the floor or is hysterically wound up or until for the adult, you know, often they start to have more physical manifestations like numbness in the legs or drooping eyelids or, you know, heaviness in the arms or a bad headache. Waiting until that happens means it's too late. And so I'd just love to hear from an occupational therapy perspective, what can we do to help get a better handle on the cues that the body has and how can we learn to talk about those? And what is the sensory connection for all of that as well? One of the things that I did for one of the children that I'm working with is I did an, uh, an adapted how does my engine run. So we could be on high, low, or medium, just right. And if we, um, and, and I did it on a pie plate. And so um, we had various little, uh, it almost looks like one of those fancy watches that you see advertised in Sky Mall magazine if you've been on a plane lately. And so we had little dials inside the dials. And so if my hand was getting tired, I moved my hand over to the low side. And the minute I got two things on the low side, that was my clue, go up to the teacher and say, I'm, I'm losing it. And so it, it allowed us to have our own little, uh, you know, is my hands feeling tingly? Is my hands, you know, am I dropping the pencil more than I am? Am I getting more uncomfortable in my seat? All of these things are uh, were developed from a checklist uh, that I put together, and then we put it on a uh, paper plate with um, with uh, with uh, little arrows, and we could move these arrows. And the minute that the child saw that my hands were getting a little tired, or my legs were getting a little tingly, or I was starting to get a headache, or my eyes were feeling like they were shifting and I was getting double vision, or I was getting a little queasy feeling in the stomach, and little. Any little bit of feeling like that, once it got onto the low side of the pie chart on the paper plate, that's when we went up. And I think that um, although that's a little um, young to be using for adults, certainly a checklist. Uh, we could even put it on um, iPhones or Blackberries and just go through it and, and once once two or three things get filled out there, maybe our phone would, I don't know if we could even do this. It's just occurring to me as I'm talking. Maybe our phone could ping to us, just like it tells us when we've got a meeting. And we could say, oh, okay, I'm beginning to, you know, wind down here. I've got to, I've got to do some steps to wind back up. I, 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 that whole idea of using our phones just, just occurred to me, but I have used a paper plate. And that has worked um, because that's, that's allowed the child to see 
go, okay, I've got two. The minute I get two, I don't wait to get three or four. And the idea is to break it down into smaller smaller segments that you can recognize so that you don't wait until you've got the migraine headache or the, right, um, to recognize what are an individual's cues. So you're crying hysterically because you can't figure out what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and, you know, and, and then comforting becomes an issue because it's very hard to comfort these children because they, um, uh, they don't, you know, it's like if someone scrapes their knee, you can, you can bandage the knee. But this is all over the body. It's like everything becomes like a raw nerve ending. And that's the sensory piece. You want to make sure that you don't get it so raw that it becomes uncomfortable to be comforted so that we want to start normalizing our sensory system. The best, piece, the best way to, the best one that we start with, of course, is touch. Everything about our body is touch. We feel ourselves sitting. We feel ourselves standing. We feel ourselves holding a spoon. We feel ourselves wearing eyeglasses. We, um, we feel ourselves. So uh, using different kinds of um, textures before we go to bed and when we wake up, maybe not drying a um, washcloth in the dryer and letting it air dry so it's a little stiffer, and just getting our, our, our textures um, going. Um, if the uh, pool happens to have a home ec building and they, uh, a home ec room and they're having less and less of these this, these days, but there's a whole movement to bring home ec back because people have to know how to care for themselves. Um, getting a, a warm blanket into a dryer and then just wrapping that blanket or beach towel around the child, the warmth. So we want to work on the, on the sensory systems that are comforting. But we also want to alert the child for things that aren't comforting. We, I, I worked with a child that found the um, sound of a fire drill, which schools have to have, so disturbing that it paralyzed him, literally. I mean, he, he went into a freeze state. So, like, wearing headphones and, and there's lots of computer programs that can you identify the sound? of a fire truck, of an ambulance, of a violin, kinds of things. If you can under, if you can pick out those sounds, you know. So um, there's all kinds of, of uh, things that we can do. Uh, on a, uh, there's a book at Barnes & Noble called The Orchestra that comes with a CD, and they go through all of the individual sounds of the, of the orchestra. And certainly if you play this game with two headphones and mom or somebody sitting next to them, you can turn up the drums or you can turn up the tuba. And, you know, and so that you can then hear beautiful music, but you can also hear individual sounds. So there's lots of ways you can turn sound sensitivity into a game um, and touch sensitivity into a game and into also a comforting uh, uh, piece. The hardest thing to do is when we're talking about proprioception, body and space awareness, because that's often, those are the, the, uh, the mobility, internal muscle. Uh, we get into some pain pieces there. And we certainly want to be able to um, set our bodies to move. So shadow games, if you have a, a white wall or a white um, um, uh, wipe off board and you can get like maybe uh, one of those uh, gooseneck lamps and turn off the lights in the classroom uh, uh, and get people to make uh, ducks and things and shadows on the, on the board then you're getting them to feel and actually get the feedback that they've made their hands in the right space and they've, they've made their wavy uh, you know um, they can make arms that go like a swan, et cetera, and so forth. So there's lots of, of, of ways to play. And certainly learning how to move more fluidly 
and in response to what your body can do is something that all the children can participate in so the child doesn't have to feel isolated, picked out, and uh, I hate to use this word because I think sometimes labels help, but labeled. So, Susan, thank you so much. I'm going to open the callers to questions so that we can um, take some questions from the group. Let me unmute everyone. And now, if anyone has a question, feel free to speak up and just introduce yourself briefly, and then we can ask our question to Susan. Go ahead. I, can, I can't hear this person, so Christy oh. would repeat it. That would be great. Sure. I think um, we're just waiting for anyone who has a question. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. I didn't know if I was on mute or not. Um, I'm... My daughter, um, who she's born has mitochondrial disease, tends to have a pretty good delayed reaction to, you know, um, energy fatigue and all of that. And I know it sounds silly, but we went to the zoo on Saturday, and last night she was in the ER. So it's like a four or five day response time lag. So it's difficult for us sometimes to know how to monitor, other than just putting her down in a bubble in the house, how to monitor what's putting fatigue on her, you know, what's, what's stressing or taxing her, and how to manage that. I still give her a life, you know, a full life. When you, she was at the zoo, was she riding or was she walking? Well, it was half and half. The first part of the morning, it was pretty cold, so she was really, like, quiet inside the stroller. And then after lunch, she kind of warmed up and ran around for another 45 minutes, maybe. It, was, it just wasn't much. I guess we didn't see anything a whole lot. And so mm -hmm. it's difficult for me to forecast, I guess, what's going to tax her. And we're trying to figure out how to let her enjoy, you know, doing things without, you know, seeing a response a week later. Okay. One of the things that I would think about is uh, to think about this almost like, pardon the expression, toilet training, where you trip train a child to begin with. And so you know that every, uh, you know, 20 minutes you're going to ask the child if they need to go to the bathroom. When you – when she – as this kind of energy, after about 10, 15 minutes of running around, I'd say, you know what, let's save our energy, let's, um, let's uh, uh, sit down and take a, take a stroll, and then we'll come back here and play for another 10, 15 minutes. So that it isn't using up a whole big span of energy at one time, it's using up little blocks of energy. And so... Um, and kids are smart. One of the things I tell parents all the time is that you cannot kid a kid. They know that that something isn't exactly the way it's happening with all of their peers. So if you can say, you know, we just um, uh, it's time to replenish your energy factory. So let's sit down for you know a few minutes, and your energy factory makes it a whole bunch slower than other kids. So let's make sure that your energy factory gets working again. So let's let's stop for a few minutes and then we can come back here, I promise. I think that's a great suggestion and I would say that you're not alone in the experience you've had for your daughter. I hear from lots of parents that find the same thing happens. Um, that they know that because they went to the beach on Saturday that by the following weekend that their child's gonna have a fever. <laughs> and and it's and you have to learn over time to make that connection, and I bet some of the adult patients can relate to that as well. I would just throw in there the metabolic piece is very important to consider also because if you are out and about, you're less likely to be on your typical schedule for whatever the food and drink usually may be if you were at home or at school. Um, where you had access to things in more of a rest time. And so, especially for kids, you get excited and then they don't really want to sit down and finish eating or drinking. And that's really important because that's one of the only ways we have to refuel with mitochondrial disease patients is to make sure you're getting enough, even extra, fluids and nutrition when you've got increased energy demand by something as simple as an outing to the zoo. And um, you yeah. use those downtimes where you ask the child to, you know, kind of rest a little bit, to use those downtimes for extra nutrition. You could, right. You could yeah, we try to keep her hydrated throughout the day, but I haven't thought about sitting her down and then making, you know, we've, we try to check in on her, but if she says everything's fine, we kind of ignore it, so I don't want to harass her, but 
that's, yeah, that's a great idea. I appreciate it. Okay. Any other comments for that question of anybody else you'd like to share? Is there a particular type of food that you would recommend over another, the carbohydrates versus protein or dairy? So some of it, I think, depends on, and Susan, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll answer this I, one unless you yeah, have any. Not a food expert. Um, <laughs> some of it depends on what type of mitochondrial disorder you have um, because if you think about where the defect is in the energy cycle, it, it makes a difference for some people. Also, if you have a fatty oxidation disorder, then obviously you wouldn't go after the higher fat food. Um, having said that, as a generalization, knowing that you don't have a fatty oxidative disorder and you don't have um, any condition that would warrant staying away from high-fat foods, I would say a lower-carbohydrate, higher-fat food tends to be a better snack because it, um, in people with mitochondrial disease, the processing of turning carbohydrates and then glucose into energy is more demanding than converting protein and fat into energy. And so something like cheese and peanut butter is probably a better option than crackers. And um, I just wanted to say that for the uh, adults that are out there, one of the things that I did do uh, is look up um, uh, clinical trials. They are often asking for individuals to participate, and the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal Disease is running a trial, and you can get to them through clinicaltrials.gov. It's all one word, clinicaltrials.gov, and they are now currently looking for individuals are adults, and they are going to be using a behavioral exercise as their modality to help um, remediate conditions. And so they are currently uh, recruiting for individuals uh, to participate. So if you are an adult with mitochondrial disease, um, and you, this is something that might be interesting to you, please uh, just log on to clinicaltrials.gov and see if this is something you would like to um, participate in. Uh, they said that the participants will partake in a regular exercise training for six months. So, and you and you would do it at your home base. So that's great. That's great to know. Thank you. Um, we probably have time for another question. So, anyone else have a question they'd like to ask Susan? If you have a student who is, or a child who has a mitochondrial disorder and is on a feeding tube, how much should you be pushing food in addition to that um, formula that they get through the feeding tube? So I would actually leave that to the doctor. That is not something that I would independently make a decision about. Um, certainly hydration is very important. And I would look to um, uh, the Cleveland Clinic. Um, there is a doctor there called Sumit, S-U-M-I-T, Harakai. And uh, she's from the Cleveland Clinic. And she talks about to ensure fluids uh, that are provided uh, also provide a source of dextrose. So I would, uh, I would, Think to things like Gatorade, but uh, I certainly wouldn't, if, if someone's on a feeding tube, they're already in a fragile nutritional state, I wouldn't do anything without a doctor's approval or a nutritionist. Thank you. I think some of it is behavioral as well, and so that's, it's definitely something to bring up, I think, in the child's IEP, because some kids are able to eat. So the expectation that they sit and nibble on whatever they're able to have during snack time or lunch time so that socially they can be more normal, yet if they've got a G-tube or a J-tube, they may not need that nutrition is good to know. On the other hand, some kids have a G-tube or J-tube and they use it for uh, primary kind of baseline hydration and for medication administration, but not for 
additional hydration that you would need to be able to kind of teach the team to take into account on a day-by-day basis. So, for example, if it's a day where there's a special activity and you're going to be doing a lot of extra physical activity, um, then bumping up hydration, not changing what's going on with the G or J tube, but if the child's able to take by mouth, increasing that. If it's a really hot day, you know, you need to increase that hydration um, if the child's able to still take by mouth. Conversely, there are some kiddos who are on a G or J tube because their gut doesn't want to process food and um, liquids like but normally through the digestive tract, and in which case it's really important, I think, for someone like the OT to really step in and take the upper hand on coming up with some alternatives that that kid can be doing while everybody else is eating because in our culture, eating is a very social experience, and um, at school that's one of the places where I hear of a lot of frustration from parents and children when they are not able to participate because they can't eat or they, or they feel so nauseous after eating that it defeats the purpose of having that food. So I would really hope that the OT would um, pull from your resource library on what are some other things that the child could be doing during that time, like feeding the class pet or whatever, you know. And one of the other things, I did work with this child, um, you know, when we're nauseous, ice helps. And I did work with a little child that did have a, uh, a feeding tube and was getting uh, a lot of nutrition as well as hydration from it, but we made a slushie that he could pick at during lunch. And we just used the ice crusher machine and um, some um, uh, of uh, Gatorade, uh, some red Gatorade, and we made him a, a slushie. And so he was getting some hydration and a little bit of uh, nutrition, and, uh, and he could pick out it at lunch. And uh, the, um, uh, the kids thought that he, he was special. We froze it early in the morning so that by 11.30, 11.45, our school district feed early, um, he was getting an upside-down uh, mountain on his plate. And so, you know, it was very hard, and so it was – he could pick at slowly while everyone else was eating, and he had the, the motion of bringing a spoon to his mouth with something on it. Perfect suggestion, Susan. Thank you. I want to allow the one more question because there was someone who started to ask a question at the same time. So um, we'll take that person, and then um, we'll thank Susan for her time today. So go ahead if you're still there with that question. Hey, Christy. That was me. It's Leah. Um, I was wondering about the how to maybe get documentation about or educate about the uh, impact of emotional and intellectual use of energy as opposed to just physical. Uh, an example from my son's life would be that he had a therapist that was just couldn't really get him, and she would always forget things that she you know that didn't work and try them over and over and. She couldn't understand anything that he said. Just different things like that, and he would um, he would turn you know purple and be almost limp by about 30 minutes of this, even though he wasn't physically you know even moving his body. And I've noticed other times when he's just in a novel situation that that can cause you know just as much if not more exhaustion than actual physical exertion. Uh, can you comment on that? Oh, Susan, go ahead. Oh, okay. I would say that, you know, that we tend to see magnifies when they're in our children. Take yourself. First time you, the first day you were in college or the first time you moved to a new house, your energy level, your alertness was way up, and you probably weren't moving half a muscle. And, and so why shouldn't we just expect that with children who are fragile and don't really understand what's going on. So I'm not sure who your therapist was or if that was an occupational therapist, but if I had a child who had an emotional response to uh, energy uh, situations, 
then I think I would allow them to plan the time with me so they would know what's coming next. I mean, why put yourself in an emotional dark room where you might bump into things? If you know, if we place five things out on the floor and I say, pick three. I know you've never done them before, but I'm going to be with you. Pick three. And, and they get to have some control. The very act of having control calms you down. And I think that we don't take into consideration children that have mitochondrial disease just how much of an impact being out of control. Because they get fired spontaneously, they get nauseous spontaneously, they get headaches spontaneously. They wind up in a strange place called the hospital, and they don't really understand why. And so we have to move towards integrating self-control. Before we can do self-monitoring, we have to have self-control. And one of that ways is starting at the outside and bringing it in. What would you choose? And I think we have to start allowing for choice. And I think not only in the therapy situation, but also in the classroom. It's very scary to know that at the end of the day, you're supposed to do ten things when you, you know you're only going to get four of those done. So thank you, Susan. So I am going to go ahead and, and thank Susan so much for the time she spent talking with us today. And we could probably keep talking about this for a lot longer, but it's a great overview, I think, of how important it is to really think about different ways to provide support and different um, perspectives on it's not always just about the physical metabolic aspect of mitochondrial disease. It's about the aspect of daily living and how we can make that a little easier and really break it down as well. Um, so, Susan, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your expertise with us today. We really are grateful for it. And this will go on the web along with a summary so that you can listen to it again or um, direct your team to come and listen to the presentation as well so that they get an idea of what we've talked about today. And I, so I uh, link to my website if anybody can send me a question. That's wonderful. And it, I think there is a link to your website on the announcement page. And then when we post the summary, Susan, I'll be sure to put a real obvious link there saying that as well. Um, Susan also does some wonderful workshops and presentations around the country. So I encourage you to follow that link that's there even right now to find out when she's speaking so that you can um, see her speak in person because there's so much to offer. So thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, and thank you to all the listeners. So, thank you. So, typically I would stay on the call and continue to chat with you all. I um, My husband is having surgery in an hour, so I'm actually going to end the recording and, um, and move and allow you all to continue to have a discussion on the phone. So, thank you so much for being here today. And in February, our topic will be autism and mitochondrial disease, so I encourage you to... Be sure you sign up for email on our website, and then you'll get an announcement about that. So thank you all for being here, and I'm going to hang up, but then I'll leave the line open so you can continue to chat if you'd like to. Good luck with the surgery. Thank you, Bob.